Uh, today, we're going to try to make it through a little bit more in the book of Judges. But I'm really struck with the parallels that um, today, and particularly yesterday, brings us with the book of Judges. I know there are some in the room who were not even alive on that day. But I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a Tuesday morning. Stuart Norton walked into my office and he said, have you seen what's going on? They think it's a terrorist attack. We quickly got some news playing on a television in the conference room, and uh, we couldn't take our eyes off the screen. At that point, only one plane had hit. As soon as the second plane hit, I immediately walked out of the room, got in my car, and drove over to the McGee Center, where my wife Dawn was walking with Laura Gillis. If it was going to be all over and more attacks were going to come, even something nuclear, I wanted to be with Dawn. (laughs) That's really what I was thinking. Over the next days and even months, I could not have been more proud to have been an American. A country united around a common enemy, even though at that time that enemy was very undefined. I remember some especially proud moments of being an American when President George Bush was visiting Ground Zero and he yelled back to the crowd, We hear you, and the rest of the world can hear you. And the people who knock down these buildings will hear us all soon. My heart was beating out of my chest, proud to be an American. I remember later, about a month later, when President Bush was throwing out the first pitch at the World Series in New York City that year, about a month after the towers fell. And in a bulletproof vest, he threw a perfect strike. And I thought, those guys are in trouble. Our president throws strikes in, perfect, in bulletproof vests. The Congress prayed together. We flew our flags. We had prayer meetings. We were called to remember and to build on solid foundations, like Billy Graham just said, but it didn't last, did it? It's been 20 years. And in the past 20 years, our nation has become more divided than ever before. The foundation of trust in God has eroded, and we are left with our feet firmly planted in the shifting sands of a self-indulgent, agenda-driven, power-hungry, people-pleasing leaders who wouldn't know honor if it stepped up and slapped them in the face. You see, it's just like in the period of Judges. There is this cycle that takes place, and it will continue to come until Jesus comes back. Opposition will come, a leader will arise, peace and security will last for a limited period of time, and then indulgence, idolatry, injustice, apathy, and a rapid decline into immorality will lead to more chaos. And then the cycle will continue. And if we've learned anything in the last 20 years, what I think we need to learn is that the human leaders are not the answer. The book of Judges summarizes itself with these words repeatedly. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. Only Jesus Christ was the answer, is the answer, and will be the answer. Jesus Christ is the king we need, the king we pray for, and the book of Judges shows us the cycle, and we'll be introduced to it today. But it's a cycle that 
that starts with chaos, and we're back in the cycle of, of chaos and division and opposition. And we need a leader. But, but in the middle of all the chaos that you see represented all around me, our, our only hope, and the only hope that the Israelites had, was not the leaders that, that emerged as, as judges for them, the Jephthahs and the Samsons and the Gideons. They were uh, woefully inadequate. The kings that eventually came, the king they chose in Saul, the king that God anointed in David, they also failed. The only hope through the tattered line of history is Jesus Christ. And, and we can see the cycle, but in the middle of the cycle, we don't know how many times God will let it happen. Our only hope is that there will be a king in the land, and it will be a righteous king. And there's only one righteous king, and it's Jesus Christ. So as we get back into the book of Judges, um, I'm going to try to start in chapter 2 again. Um, I heard something this week that I thought would be helpful. Since last week I was going to try to make it all the way through chapter 2 and into chapter 3, and I made it a fourth of the way through the message. And so I'm going to go over some things again. Um, Samuel Johnson said this, people need to be reminded more often than they need to be instructed. So I'm going to remind you of what I said even just last week. Uh, A couple of quick reminders. If you're looking for a book, a commentary to help you go through this, Dale Ralph Davis's book is, is excellent. And in fact, one of the things that is a resource for you is, is from this book. Um, it's out on the, on the stage, and I don't usually recommend the, the readings like this, uh, but they're both on Baal worship. And let me just say something before I get to these, these uh, resources. Our, our greatest understanding of Baal worship and Canaanite worship in general came from an archaeological discovery in 1929 at Ugarit. And when they uncovered this treasure trove of religious artifacts, um, the things they found there were not originally translated into the common languages that they normally would have been translated into. They didn't translate them into English at first. They translated them into Latin because... The Canaanite religion was so perverse that even the descriptions of them in these religious texts, they didn't want to publish and make available to the common readers, okay? Um, We're going to understand a little bit about that this week and the next week and as we move through, but but the one that's by Dale Ralph Davis, I'm going to tell you it's for mature audiences. It's, It's real, and it could be worse, Okay? Uh, in terms of what he talks about in the nature of Baal worship. Uh, I would still use some discretion with the one that's by Dan Block, but these, these backgrounds of the, the immorality of the days that we're talking about, um, they're shocking, but they're not surprising because in many ways there are parallels and, and, and very close parallels to our day. Um, as we get back into Judges, I just want to one more time tell you, Judges isn't a nice book. It's raw, and it's tough, and it's confronting. It's a, it's a difficult book, but I also want to warn you, we cannot take the, the approach of pointing our fingers at those bad Canaanites and Israelites. The parallels are too close. <laughs> the, the cycles of, 
of chaos and opposition. And in the midst of the chaos and the opposition, crying out to God and, and turning back to him in, in some sort of turn to him, but not genuine repentance and revival because it doesn't last. And the, the failure of the human leaders that we turn our attention to, um, it's, it's, not, it's not long-lasting. Um, and, and we are like that as a people and, and as a church. Setting it up historically, just to remind you, uh, the period we're talking about here is um, after Moses has led the children of Israel out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt, they have come after wandering for 40 years in the land, um, they make it to the land, and Joshua leads a conquest of the land. It takes them about seven years to do that. And it's after that period of, of conquest that, that, that Joshua leads the, the entire army to go in and to control strategic portions. That's the first half of the book of Judges. They go into the land, they go right down the middle, then to the north and then to the south, and they control the strategic centers of the land. And then Joshua divides up the land to their allotted inheritances, and he tells them, you guys go finish the job. And it's the finishing of the job after Joshua's death that is our next period of time, around um, 325, depending on where you start it and where you end it, around 325 years, uh, maybe 385 years if you take into account a little bit of the life of Joshua and you take into account a little bit of Samuel, who, who functions as a judge as well. It could get up to about 400 years almost. Um, it, it moves all around the land. This is not a chronological book. There are some things that you hear about at the beginning of the book that took place chronologically at the end. There's a, a scene at the very end of the book that took place chronologically at the beginning. Um, but, but these judges are popping up sometimes at the same time in different areas of the land. Um, and there's different oppressors. There are different bad guys. Sometimes the Midianites are oppressing. Sometimes the Philistines are oppressing. Um, I mean, just like today, sometimes it's Al-Qaeda. Sometimes it's ISIS. Sometimes it's the Taliban. You don't know who the enemy is, but they're changing and they're attacking at different times. Um, and the tribes themselves are supposed to be pushing them back and, and they have limited success. Like I said last week, as a reminder... Uh, there's a double introduction here at the, end, at the beginning of the book. It's going to parallel the double conclusion at the end of the book. The first uh, chapter and then part of chapter 2 is really about the warfare. It's the political situation where they failed to drive out all of the inhabitants of the land. And, and the, the failure grows throughout chapter 1. What, what actually is happening is they do a pretty good job, then a less good job, then not a good job at all, then they completely fail at the end of chapter 1. Chapter 2 really um, gives the consequences of that, and that is that there's idolatry in the land. It kind of goes back through. Not only did they fail politically to drive them out, but they failed spiritually um, because they began to worship the gods of the people they did not drive out. And God has a double response to that. His response is to be faithful to his people because they are his people. But he is going to be fierce with the consequences I'll be faithful and I'll deliver you and I'll accomplish my purpose. And a king will really eventually come, but there are going to be consequences. And, and what we learn there is if you really want to enjoy the blessings of the covenant, because God is faithful. If you want to get in that, that part of God blessing and being faithful, if you want to be a part of that and not the part of the consequences, then you fulfill your responsibilities to the covenant. 
It starts off, the chapter, with the end of the Joshua generation. They're the, the, the first-hand generation who knew. They knew firsthand. They had experienced. They didn't just know about God. They knew firsthand about God. Here's how the, the chapter starts. Um, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. Here's the spiritual analysis of that. But the people served the Lord God through the lifetime of Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord God had done for Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. It's a, a, a high title. I mean, this title is eventually given to, to Messiah as the servant of the Lord. But he died at an age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Um, Joshua and Caleb are the only two Israelites who left Egypt who actually entered the promised land. Everyone else died because of their lack of faith. Um, Joshua and Caleb are exceptions. And at the beginning of the book, Joshua is an exception to the book of Judges. Um, We'll study the book of Ruth as soon as we finish Judges because Ruth is also an exception. The book of Ruth starts in the days when the Judges ruled. And Ruth is faithful. Ruth and Boaz are, are the exception to the chaos and the unfaithfulness and the idolatry of the time of the judges. An application here. Um, J- Joshua and Ruth teach us this. In the midst of ongoing faith, failure and idolatry, when, when everything's going to hell in a handbasket around you, when the world is degenerating and getting farther and farther away from God and judgment is falling, God will always reward the faithful. Okay? So in the midst of all that goes on around us, in the midst of uh, cultural drift, in the midst of political failure, in the li- midst of chaos and opposition and attacks, God will still reward those who are faithful. In the middle of all of it, there are the exceptions like Joshua, Caleb, and Ruth who do successfully love the Lord. But the next generation didn't. Um, and, and they didn't because they didn't know the Lord. They knew about him. They heard these stories, but they never internalized them. They never experienced them for real. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, the Joshua generation, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They didn't know him, and because they didn't know who he really was, uh, their attention was turned to the Baals. They forsook the Lord. They served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. This aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him, and they served Baals and Asherahs. Boy, there's a lot in this passage. Um, The one generation is gone. Now this other generation, because they don't know God, they forsake him. They serve these other gods. They follow, they worship these other gods. Um, I need to unpack a lot of this. First of all, they didn't know him. This is the idea of, of experiential knowledge. It's not just casual knowledge. It's, it's, it's intimate relational knowledge. This next generation, um, I think they heard their parents pray. They heard their parents tell the stories, but, but they never paid attention in a way that, that allowed them to own it. And the generation drifted. It was a generation that, that were not believers. I think we're in such a similar situation now. We have people who know the Lord, but the next generation's not owning that, and they're drifting. Um, it says that they served, they followed, they, they worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs. And 
I'll be careful in how I say this, but um, Baal is the god of the thunderstorm, but he's also the son of the high god who, who actually defeats the high god, takes the high god's wife, and that becomes his consort. And, and as this god, and he's known as Baal or Bel or Hadad or Dagon, same god of the thunderstorm, he's responsible for the fertility of the land. Um, he, he's seen um, portrayed in two different ways. One is standing on clouds with a, a lightning bolt in his hand because he's bringing rain on the earth. But he's also portrayed as a bull, uh, bringing fertility to the, to the animals. Um, his consort, his wife, is Astarte, Ashtart, Anat, Ishtar, a number of different names in all these ancient religions. Um, and um, the relationship of the two of them is perverse. Um, and, and involving them in the fertility productions of the land um, required a very perverse form of worship. Um, temple prostitutes were common um, because the, the worship was designed to produce um, action among the gods. And so when, when God says to the Israelites, you've prostituted yourselves to the Baals and the Astaroths, um, it really... <laughs> It really is a, a, the, a, absolutely the appropriate word. Um, read Dale Ralph Davis's article because what it basically, it basically says the Canaanites had this on, on um, the Israelites. Yeah, maybe God delivered you from Egypt. Maybe he parted the Red Sea. Maybe he was a, 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 a pillar of fire and a cloud that guided you. But you know what you need right now? You need day-to-day rain. You need fertility. You need your, your cattle to, to have more calves. And, and we've got the market on that with Baal and Ashtaroth. We can get them to produce the fertility for us. We can make it rain. Come on up to the temple. It's a lot more fun than what you guys do. Let us show you all about it. And it allowed them to say, yeah, my day-to-day life will be better if I jump into this plan. The verbs that are used to describe Israel's um, commitment to the gods, they serve them. This is, this is the big word in the Old Testament for serving God and keeping his commandments. But they serve the other gods. Um, they walked after them. This is a following after as a spiritual commitment. They followed after these gods. They, wherever they went, whatever they led, they followed after them. They worshiped them. This is the idea of bowing down to them. Um, all of this involves serving, worshiping. It involves their money, giving their money at these pagan temples. And they abandoned God. It's a harsh word. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's, it's ripping a Band-Aid off. They abandoned God, and they started following these other gods. These other gods that were highly sexualized, violent, and all about daily prosperity for you. You think there's parallels to, to us? following all of the sexualized things in our culture and um, 
the, the violence that we see that, that is unexplainable. When you see things happen, you go, who does this? And then I think the last thing for the common Israelite was, hey, this is about day-to-day fertility and, and just success in life. And the Canaanites had this thing figured out. And I think we sell ourselves out to that stuff. But, but we're going to get introduced to the character of God in this. This is the people. Their failure was they were enamored with these gods that, pros- that, that promised prosperity. That promised, hey, if you just go with the flow with our culture, you know what? Your income will be good. You, you, you go with the flow with our culture, you'll enjoy yourself a lot more than, than that severe dedication to God that, that he seems to be asking for you. Um, what we're going to see is God's character in the midst of this monotonous downward spiral. <laughs> um, God's character is to be faithful, but sometimes that faithfulness is faithfulness to discipline us. But ultimately, if you're really his people, he will save you, but he will discipline you through that. Here's the cycle that gets introduced. This is um, kind of this famous cycle in the book of Judges. Um, There's a time of sin. The people wander. They they worship the other gods. Then there's a time of oppression, either from the Midianites or the Philistines or the the Amorites. Somebody is going to oppress them. They're going to cry out. They're going to pray, God, deliver us. God's going to send a deliverer. They're going to experience a time of rest. And then the cycle is going to repeat. Um, Most of my life, I understood that cycle as a cycle that went through the book of Judges like this. I've clearly begun to see that the cycle doesn't move along a line. The cycle goes down. Each uh, deliverance is from a harder oppression. Each deliverer has less character. Um, and, and it really is the reason we have toilets on the stage is because this book is like a toilet flush. It just gets worse and worse. The cycle is there going around, but as it goes around, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And then one thing to pull out of the cycle here, um, Greg Wong highlights it. The people's crying out in stage three is not to be understood as acts of repentance, but simply as cries for help. (laughs) They're not really turning to God. They're just saying, God, help us. It's so bad. And God actually, he pities them. Um, he, he, He saves them, not because of repentance and forgiveness. He saves them because they're his people and he pities them. And so what you're going to get is this, this mixture of God's justice and his grace, his anger and his compassion, and they're both together. God is just, God is gracious. Um, God will save, but God will discipline. Listen to how it plays itself out. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders um, who plundered them. That word for raiders is plunder. He, he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he has sworn to them. They were in great distress. God's just doing what he said. He said, if you don't follow me, I will withdraw my hand of protection, and I'll let these nations do what they want to do anyways. Because empowered by Satan, here's the deal. What Satan wants to do is is eliminate Israel in any way possible because he knew that Israel was the conduit through whom Messiah was going to come. 
And so all of these nations, empowered by Satan, they want to destroy Israel, and the Lord is protecting them. And now the Lord is saying, no, I'm, I'm withdrawing my hand, and my hand's against you. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm punishing you because you are, are following other gods. And they were in great distress. It was bad for them. Um, a quick application here. Uh, the passage reminds us that God tolerates no rivals. He expects our full devotion and loyalty. He views unfaithfulness as spiritual adultery. Um, God is not okay to be in your top three. And I think that's where he is for most of us. I think most of us, even in the room, even on the stage, a lot of our life, God's in our top three, and we feel pretty good about it. God needs one place. I mean, think about this. How, do you, how, how warmed do you think my wife would be if I told her, Dawn, <laughs> you need to feel so good. You're in my top three. <laughs> really? That's not the kind of relationship any of us want. She wants to be my number one. She wants to be my only. And... and and God is in that same position. But, but we, we feel comfortable putting God in our top three. So here's what happens. Then the Lord raised up judges. They're, they're in distress. God's hand is against them. He's doing what he said he's going to do. He's disciplining them. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was, a, uh, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways, of even, to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. There's a lot going on here. See, God raises up. God saves them. God raises up. God saves them. We're going to have to look at this idea that God relented. What, happened, what happens there? But they prostituted themselves. They quickly turned. Um, they returned to even more corrupt ways. They were following and serving and worshiping these other gods. God's saving and raising up, but they keep turning and quickly turning away. The passage is this balance of what Dan Block calls divine anger and divine compassion, which is understandable. God's anger is kindled against them for their unfaithfulness, but his compassion is there. And so we get this interplay of, of man as bad as he can be and God as faithful as he can be, faithful to discipline, but also faithful to save. Lawson Younger says, few books portray so completely a picture of human depravity as, as Judges does. We're going to see it as bad as it gets. And, and I remember 20 years ago thinking teaching through the book of Judges would be really hard because it's so bad and it's so vile. You know what? It's so easy because it's so common and so like our society today. Um, in the midst of all of God raising up and saving, raising up and saving, and them turning away from God and, and worshiping other gods, it says that, that God relents. He, he, it's a really tricky word. 
um, the, the King James Version translated it repented. God repented um, in the sense of changing his mind. Um, the King James is trying to avoid any emotion in God. It's a, it's a, it's a, a movement in the time of the King James Version in 1611 that they were trying to avoid seeing God with any emotion in that Victorian age. They, they were scared of a God who would, who would have any emotion. Um, and so um, the real meaning of the word, though, is that, that God has, um, has pity on them. God, God, God pities them. Um, he, he does move to save them, but it's not because of this change of mind. It's because his heart is broken over them. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis says, God's heart is stirred by the sheer misery of his people. They're being oppressed. Oppression by their own making, but God's heart is still stirred. And, and, and folks, I don't know if you're feeling the tension here of God is angry, he's disciplining them, but he's compassionate and he's going to save them. They are groaning. They're, they're crying out. Um, this, is, this is a word for groaning out in misery. It's not repentance, but it is deep misery that just, they're, they're turning to God going, oh, we can't take it anymore. It isn't, God, we have failed. We have turned away. It's just we can't take it anymore. And, and God being faithful to his covenant is going to deliver his people because of his compassion for them. And what he does is he rages up these judges, these chieftains. Um, I, I think I can use the word warlord. Um, if, if none of these work for you, think Marshall Dillon. Okay? That's what happens. You've got a local guy who's got power and people around him, and, and he's keeping the peace, and, and everyone looks to him to make the decisions. That's what you're talking about here. I mean, I really do think a warlord is, is the idea. It's not a judge like an elected official who makes decisions. It's more of a person who, who, like a warlord, is able to gather a local army around him, a mercenary army, and throw off some oppression. Um, I mean, very much like what, what happens in Afghanistan. I mean, this has been the perfect unfolding of, of illustrations. It's these local warlords who gather people around them and then they sit in control in an area. They are, they are leaders. Um, they're, they're military, but they're also influential and usually prosperous. And because of the military success and the prosperous, people look to them to govern them in a local area. Robert Chisholm says these so-called judges are more aptly viewed as deliverers in the book of Judges, and the verb uh, shafat is better translated lead or govern. They led the armies. They governed the people. And, and so, so God raises up these leaders. And I think a lot of people think Nehemiah is about leadership. I think Nehemiah is about teamwork. I think Judges is about leadership and the lack thereof. And, and the hope, actually, in, provided in the book of Judges, is that God uses these kind of people. Because he doesn't have anybody better to use sometimes. And I wonder if that's not true for us. Um, Barry Webb says, Yahweh is torn between his pity for Israel and his anger at their apostasy. Think about what would happen if you discovered your spouse being unfaithful. You'd be angry. But if you were truly in love, there would be sorrow for what all of this is going to cause. 
According to 2.6 to 3.6, the section we're looking at, all these conflicts grow more intense as the judges' period runs its course, and at the end, no solution to them is in sight. The judges are not the answer. Human leaders are not the answer. And while the book of Judges says there's no king in the land, that's really just to get us to a king does come, but a human king, he's not going to be the solution either. Only Jesus Christ is going to be the king. But we, we find in, in the book of Judges, human depravity at its worst. One generation away from some of the most successful events in history for the Jewish nation. One generation later, they are giving their offerings and worshiping and bowing down to these perverse fertility gods. Del Ralph Davis again says, packed into five verses, is a bracing description of an unguessable God. There's only one proper response for believing people to make to such a text, to such a God. Fall down with the prophet of Micah, exclaiming, Who is a God like you, fierce in anger and faithful in compassion? Who's a God like this? Who is absolutely justified in his discipline, but is faithful to save his people? And there's, there's, there's consequences for sin. You, you, there's, there's consequences for sin. Forsaking God, following other values, has disastrous consequences. Let me try to make that more clear. Forsaking God, following other values, so that following God is not number one. Whether it's your children, or your bank account, or your job, your career, your team... If any of them become number one, you have forsaken God and you have an idol. And there's disastrous consequences to that. Dan Block keeps laying out the the sequences really well. We're going to see God's accusation. They violated the covenant. covenant. God's reaction. He's no longer going to drive out the enemies. He's going to let it take you over. And God's motivation is to test them, to test them, to train them. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in the way its ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hand, as he once did by giving them into the hands of Joshua. He basically says, I'm going to use them to test you to see if you will ever really turn back to me. Not just cry out in misery and go, God, help me. This is really bad. I've really made a mess of things. But whether you will really turn back to me, and say, my worship, my allegiance, my following after, my priorities, my money, they all follow after God. Not all these other things. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. He He did this so that they would learn how to fight spiritual battles. For them, it was very real. But why are there all these oppositions for us? Why is all this stuff left around for us? 
So we'll learn how to fight spiritual battles. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonites, the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal, Hermon to uh, Lebo Hamath. He's basically covering all the land, south, north, east, west, coastal hill country. He's getting everywhere. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's command, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. If you won't obey me when I bless you, then I'm going to see if you'll turn to me when I discipline you. That's God's plan. He does it to test them, to prove them. Uh, this is the same word that um, is used when God tested Abraham in Genesis 22. Um, in fact, the Jew, Jewish rabbis just called Genesis 22, where Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac as the test. The idea in both places is that it's a test to prove or approve someone. When God is testing these people, he's not trying to trip you up. He's not giving you a test saying, I bet this is too hard for you. He's giving them a test to train them, to, to, to see the quality of their faithfulness. And often the word requires obeying him when he asks you to do what's impossible or inexplicable. When you don't follow God with all your heart, he sends things into your life that you go, well, this one's impossible. He says, that's right, now you have to trust me. Chisholm says again, God severely disciplined his idolatrous people and then compassionately confronted them, challenging them to demonstrate their loyalty to him. This is how God works with us. When we wander from him, he disciplines us. And then he says, listen, the discipline is so that you will turn back to me. The passage ends with this very sad summary, the, the increasing slavery of their sin, the, the decline of the family. Um, and in the middle of all of this, there, there's something about family values that I, that I can't miss. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites. That, that, you may pass over that really quickly. They were supposed to conquer and drive out all of these people. And God said, you have to conquer them and drive them out because if you don't drive them out, then their religion is going to seep in to your families. So they didn't drive them out. They lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This next phrase is haunting. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. They cozied up with the people quit making the distinctions that were necessary to allow faithfulness to remain inside families. It's been 18 years now since all the studies started coming out about the generation of Christians that we're losing. Last couple years of high school into college, entire generation that's raised in church that's, that's drifting away. Um, I don't know all the solutions to stopping generational drift. But somehow it's got it's to come back to um, our children seeing a genuine experience of our faith and us figuring out how to incorporate them into that. 
not giving the option to say, you know what, this is ours, and if you want to own it, you can. But, but somehow, without forcing, still asking and inviting them in to the genuine experience of our own faith. Welcome to the book of Judges. Kenneth Way summarizes a bunch of applications this way. I want to I draw this down to an end. Habitual sin and generational drift can result in God's discipline. Every generation has to be taught to keep the covenant. Every generation. You just can't assume it's going to get passed on. And God's people are prone to forget His past work. That's why last week it was so critical for us to remember the Lord and, and why um, we're, regularly we remember through communion, his, his incarnation and His shed blood for us. God's people have a propensity towards idolatry. It's easy for us to say, God's in my top three, so I'm okay. God's deliverance, persistence, and compassion are undeserved. Um, we are so unfaithful to God and so fickle. We deserve His judgment. But God is patient and long-suffering with His people, and God may test obedience in order to teach us. This is how I summarized it last week. Habitual sin and generational drift from God leads to idolatry and results in God's discipline. Um, when you don't do what God asks you to do, and it starts off with just the simple things that are pretty clear and tangible. Drive out the Canaanites. When you don't do some of the real simple things, attend church. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Read your Bible. Provoke one another to love and good works. These are the simple, clear things. I mean, there are some complicated things, but, but there's some simple, clear things. And when you're not doing those, it's going to lead to generational drift. It's going to eventually lead to God's not your number one. He may be in your top three, and then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, he's number five. And that results in God's discipline, if you're one of his children. So again, I, I, the book of Judges can be so negative. I want to try to end with something a little less negative. Three next steps. Here's a truth. God often tests his people in order to train them. This is a good thing, okay? God tests his people to train you to be ready for the next stuff you need to be doing. God tests us, and he basically says, will you obey here? I'm going to test your faithfulness, and I want to bless you. His heart is to bless you. It breaks his heart when he has to discipline us. But the truth is, God tests his people, and he tests us. The warning, disobedience does lead to discipline. Disobedience leads to discipline because God knows disobedience leads to idolatry. And that deserves discipline. So here's the challenge. Faithfulness to God is always the right path to take, no matter what, when, or how. It's always right to be a Joshua, to be a Caleb, to be an Othniel, to be an Aska, to be a Ruth, to be an Obed. A lot of those names you don't even know. Because we're satisfied with being a Samson 
who was a hero, but an everlasting jerk. We're satisfied with that. We'd rather be um, mildly successful in the ways of the world and oh, have God in our top three. But faithfulness to God will always be rewarded. Like Joshua. You'll live to a ripe old age and you'll be buried in the land of your inheritance. There'll be battles along the way. But whenever it is that you die, you'll die knowing you were faithful to the Lord. 